Hi, everybody. George here. Uh, I'm excited to share the news with our listeners that thanks to people just like you, we're being recognized by the Podcast Awards in not one but two categories, People's Choice and TV and Film. Uh, The nice thing about the Podcast Awards is that the first stage is grassroots-based, so while it's awesome to be nominated, we want to win, which means we need you to vote. Here's how. First, you go to podcastawards.com, and right at the top is a link that says click me to nominate my favorite podcasts. Register your name and email so that you can be counted, and that'll take you to the actual voting page. People's Choice Awards are right at the top. Scroll down to the T section, because we're under the instead of best, which is not perfect formatting, but whatever. Click us and do the same for TV and film, which is further down the page. It's nice and simple. Just save your votes. That's it. You're done. Tell your friends to vote, too. We'll keep people updated, but spread the word and keep your fingers crossed and enjoy the episode. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you can find our guest making music and Don't Do It, Neil, writing for Form and Void, and just generally being rad. Mabel Harper is here. How's it going? Hey, uh, it's it's going. How, how are you? Going over here as well. We're still mid-quarantine, but we're making it work, and we're happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into horror, if it's something that you watch a lot of, sort of just where it all started for you. So I loved horror since I was a kid, but it scared the shit out of me too. Mm -hmm. It'd be the kind of thing where it's like, I wanted to hang out with my older brother and sister while they're watching horror movies because I wanted to be cool, and I liked spooky stuff, but... I would have, like, horrible nightmares, and my mom would get mad at me for watching them, yeah. I had really bad nightmares from horror as a kid as well, and it's it's funny how I feel like a lot of people sort of have that experience and then wind up coming back to it just because anything that you have sort of that strong of a reaction to, it kind of builds up this legacy in your mind or, or this reputation in your mind. Absolutely. And, and you're just like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get into it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think the traumatizing aspect of horror is why you keep coming back to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I mean, that definitely plays a big part in the movie that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, speaking of nightmares. <laughs> do, you, do you have like a preferred subgenre that you usually find yourself leaning towards or is it just kind of catch as catch can? When it comes to horror, historically, I have been a huge slasher fan, which is kind of funny because I, I there's a lot about the uh, slasher genre that I think is actually pretty fundamentally problematic. Definitely. Oh, I mean, reading Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws was a real uh, eye-opening experience. Oh, I'll have to read that. Oh, it's it's really great. And just... It's it's nice because it comes from the perspective of someone who enjoys horror and and sees a lot of the good things about it as well. But then talking about sort of the institutionalized sexism and the way that the morality tales play out at the expense of women, typically, or yeah, LGBTQ absolutely. victims uh, of whatever the thing is, there's a lot of sort of morality plays that are happening. But whose morals, you know? Yeah, exactly. What is it? The typical, like... The, the slut always dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, um, the sex punishment, yeah. The stoners always die. But it's it's also interesting because, like you said, like there's that duality to it where there's like these really problematic sexist aspects in the morality tale. And at the same time, like the person who always wins out against the great evil, usually the great male evil, yeah. is is a woman. It's the final girl. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, there's a there's a lot going on in it, and uh, I think that being able to sort of explore it and understand what is problematic about things that we, that we can enjoy still, 
but just being able to acknowledge these issues like be aware it. of it so you yeah. don't reiterate it problem you know exactly yeah. uh, i think that that's uh, a big issue in horror right now in particular um Cinestate. a lot of people have this intense nostalgia for horror and 80s horror in particular and you know this holding on to this the nostalgia in that way sort of blinds you to being able to move forward and sort of latching onto it and feeling like an attack or not even an attack but a criticism of those movies is a, is a criticism of you yeah i mean people take it as a personal attack yeah. i mean and you know it's because people are really attached to these things right but you know like when i think about slasher films i think like okay here are the things i, I enjoy about it still mm-hmm and then here are the things that I have to, like, I, ha- I keep in mind while I'm watching, right? Definitely. Well, so we're talking about one of the prototypical slasher franchises today, although we're talking about one of the installments that breaks away from your typical uh, slasher story. We're talking today about Wes Craven's New Nightmare from 1994. Yes. Phenomenal movie. It's so great. And it's technically the seventh Nightmare on Elm Street movie, although it sort of exists outside of the franchise in a really interesting way. Do you feel like Nightmare on Elm Street is a particularly good franchise, or do you just think that this one uh, example from it sort of breaks away from the issues that you have with other slashers? I actually, I really love Nightmare on Elm Street, the series. Yeah. I think, like, Freddy is a is such a great villain. Mm-hmm. And the thing I really love about A New Nightmare is how it makes him terrifying again, because I, I don't know, I mean, I'm guessing you're familiar with the series. Yeah. But he became kind of, like, jokey in some of the later sequels. So there's something about this movie taking Freddy Krueger, hardly giving him any one-liners. And the one-liners he gets are very sinister. Yeah, <laughs> they are. And, and there's uh, they, it's funny because they are sinister, but there's one in particular that I'll mention when we get to it that really did genuinely make me laugh where I was like, this one is a great stinger as he's, uh, as he's doing this. But yeah, definitely this movie sort of recrystallizes the intent of Wes Craven from the beginning. And they sort of talk about that watering down of the initial concept of Freddy from the, uh, in this movie a lot. Oh yeah. I mean like it's, it's funny cause it shows like what I, I keep wanting to call her Nancy, which is oh Heather. Exact- <laughs> yeah. Heather. <laughs> so she's on the show and then Freddy comes out and there's like these, these kids with like Freddy Krueger masks people shouting, we love Freddy. And it's funny because actually I was one of those kids for sure. I loved Freddy Krueger. I dressed up as Freddy Krueger for Halloween. He just seemed like fun to me. <laughs> you know, And that's the thing is that he is a fun character and that's why- He really is. You kind of have this um, weird dichotomy with him where he's- a pedophile canonically and murders children but like also he has these one-liners and he like plays with his food before he eats it and yeah i mean they they ended up making him what's the word i want to say cute um (laughs) which is a funny way to put it but they did make him cute they made him very funny in such a way that yeah it, it removed the initial menace of the character who is like like you said canonically a pedophile canonically a child killer yeah right Definitely. And one thing I thought was interesting is that typically meta movies are comedies. And uh, while they typically reference specific franchises are more vague in their actual existence. You have your Tucker and Dales, your Cabins in the Woods, your The Final Girls. But New Nightmare takes a meta approach to an already established franchise and uses that meta nature to increase the horror instead of the comedy, bringing Freddy into the real world instead of the comical villain that he had been in these previous entries. I'm curious if you like this because it kind of breaks away and subverts those typical aspects of a meta 
horror movie or if you like meta movies in general and you just like this uh additionally because of that i mean i do definitely like meta movies in general but i mean there's something about it being very specifically nightmare on elm street interestingly i mean i i I prefer this movie to scream which i think is kind of like kind of similar kind of doing a similar thing but there's something about this being so specific right definitely and it's like and it i mean you know up to featuring like Heather Langenkamp, Robert England, Wes Craven. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of uh, meta narrative stuff woven into it, and uh, it's meta in more than one way. In fact, also revolving around Heather Langenkamp having a demonic stalker, when in real life she did she have had, a stalker. she had a real stalker. Yeah, and Wes Craven got her permission to weave this into the story. Her husband is also actually a special effects artist, but that that wasn't her husband, right? No, it wasn't. Um, but Miko Hughes, who plays the son also has a dad that was a special effects artist and so oh wow they really sort of put all of these things together in a way that there's a lot of authenticity to the relationships that they have because there's so much of their real lives kind of brought into it oh yeah and that's that's part of what makes the movie feel real i mean even though like technically it's a little dated is it a little corny sure Mm. what like classic slasher film isn't a little corny but you know bringing in all those real life details using the real people and like some of the you know situations they have faced in real life i mean that's part of what makes freddy so terrifying in it absolutely and one thing i also really like about what they were doing with this movie is that wes craven was definitely interested in exploring the relationship between horror its creators and its audience um i mean he released scream two years later as well but Like you said, there is, I think, a pretty distinct difference between the two because Scream is much more celebratory in its meta aspects, it feels like to me, whereas in this movie, there's sort of like an undercurrent of anger and the way that he and his IP and and the actors that he used have been treated, especially because they sort of took his concept of this terrifying dream demon (laughs) and, like you said, watered it down to the point where he was comical and, and cute. Yeah, where he becomes like, I don't know, like a, a kid's mascot or something, right? Definitely. So, I mean, that's the thing. I actually, I, I actually really like Scream. Um, I think Scream's also a funnier movie. Mm-hmm. This movie is not humorous. No. Like you're saying about, like, so many metafictional horror films go for humor. I mean, even Cabin in the Woods, mm-hmm. um, which can be legitimately scary, is also, like, a hilarious movie. They ride that balance so well in that movie. And in this one, they're just not even going for that. They're like, this is, this is a horror movie. It's not a horror comedy. Oh, yeah, no, it's completely sinister. It was released just in time for Halloween on October 14th in 1994, and it grossed $19.8 million at the box office on a budget of $8 million. So even though that is a profit, the margin makes it the poorest performing film in the franchise. Yeah, it's a crime. It really is. And this is despite positive reviews from critics, and Robert England himself considers it his fave of the franchise as well. I mean, it's, I think, like, aside from the first one, it's, it might, I mean, it's tied with the first one for being my favorite film in the franchise the way that it does take aspects of the the ones that i liked previously i i like one two and three as well Mm -hmm. but it manages to take the aspects of those that i liked and incorporate it into this movie that sort of reframes it into a uh an even scarier way because it's not just a movie anymore now it's it's invading our real life so oh yeah you know like i think it's interesting because i i think part of why it didn't do well is because, like, Scream was a huge financial success. Yeah. But that's because it was aimed at, like, audiences, right? Mm-hmm. It primarily was made for audiences and audiences' understanding of horror films, of slasher films. Right. And whereas this is really from the creator's point of view. Yeah, it's sort of like a cathartic scream for Wes. 
<laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I actually think it's kind of. I think the role he gave himself in the movie is both really cool and really funny. Yeah, I, I he's totally just agree. He, he's like this fucking prophet. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> like I'm gonna make myself a precog. <laughs> yeah, it's it's this guy's job to uh, contain the evil in the world within a screenplay. But that's also the coolest fucking thing about it. Because the thing is about like you know any slasher film, any horror movie is it's like playing on very primordial fears we have. Mm-hmm. So and this movie makes that very explicit. Where it's actually not literally Freddy Krueger. It's the idea of, I don't know, evil and fear itself manifesting as Freddy Krueger. That difference, it did connect with people. I mean, even cranky old Ebert connected with this movie, despite his typical (laughs) disdain for genre film, saying that I haven't been exactly a fan of the Nightmare series, but I found this movie with its unsettling questions about the effect of horror on those who create it strangely intriguing. I I think that that's exactly right. It's the way that it sort of questions what people are giving up and sacrificing from themselves to bring this art into the world, uh, I think is a pretty interesting question, especially because someone like Heather Langenkamp, where she's clearly in the movie, she is trying to move on and be with her family and she, she's doing TV now, but you know, her driver can't is like, the legacy of it. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I find that really fascinating. So it's, it's really cool stuff. And the way that they sort of lean into the authenticity of it only makes it better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's actually really interesting too, because um, when Heather does interact with fans in the movie or when you see fans and Heather, first off, by and large, they largely ignore her, mm-hmm. even though she's the, she's like, she was the hero of the series. Really. Right. But she's not the one who's, Who's, uh, how do I put this? She's not the one who's celebrated. The villain is. Yeah, there's a, there's a scene where it's it's very explicit, too, where after their oh, yeah. their interview, you know, she's like, Robert, come on, we have to go. And Robert is- And he's like signing a billion swarmed. autographs. Yeah. yeah. He, he has to leave in the middle of it. And I, I think that that is very sort of emblematic of uh, what's going on in, in terms of her relationship to- this thing where it's it's a blessing and a curse it made her famous it brought it made her uh, able to provide for her family but you know there is sort of this ball and chain that it creates and and latches around absolutely i think it's really interesting actually because so uh, you mentioned the limo driver earlier that's like one of the direct interactions she has with a fan in the movie and he's and he's almost predatory right yeah 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 <laughs> And uh, well, so we'll we'll get to this scene in, in a second. But uh, one thing I also think is, is really interesting about it is that like she literally puts up a wall. Mm-hmm. She rolls up the window between them, and it doesn't actually work. It's clear no. she can still hear him, and I, I just think that there's sort of a lot going on in that. Scene. And doesn't he ignore her and just keep talking? Yeah, he sure does. Yeah. It's it's rough, but. Uh, before we get that far, we'll, we'll jump into the actual movie now. Classic move for a movie trying to blur the lines. There's no opening credits here. But we do get a rad montage of Freddy building the glove. It's very cool, and it honestly seems like it has sort of like a life of its own, which I like. And right after he cuts off his own hand, it shifts in perspective and tone to show that they're, in fact, making a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and this is on set. 
this is when we're introduced to Heather Langenkamp as Heather Langenkamp and not as Nancy, which is how we know her. She is she's the star of Nightmare on Elm Street and also has a major part in the third Nightmare on Elm Street. And in this movie, uh, she's living in Los Angeles with her husband Chase, played by David Newsom, and their young son Dylan. Um, Miko Hughes plays Dylan, and I was like looking at this kid's credits, and holy crap! I mean, he was in Kindergarten Cop, Pet Cemetery, Apollo 13, Spawn, Clockstoppers, <laughs> and Tropic Thunder. I'm like, what? He was in Tropic Thunder? Yeah, he was uh, the radio DJ in, uh, in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> what the Thunder. hell? I know. And it's it's we're introduced to them all here, and I really like the chemistry that they all have together right away. Yeah. It, I mean, they feel like a real family. Definitely. And, uh, like, you can pick up on the chemistry, too, between, like, the people working on the movie. I mean, it really... You said something earlier about how they really brought those relationships in, and it really does add something to the movie. I totally agree. I think that every little bit that they can do to help create that authentic relationship between them comes across on screen. And the fact that it is, if you can get those little details to come across, I mean, it, all mm-hmm. that does is help to serve as a foundation for the bigger swings that you're going to take as well. Oh, yeah. The hand that they're working on spasms and it cuts Chase while it's turned off. And one of the technicians remarks that it's warm, just like a real hand. And then it lunges out and kills two of the crew members before attacking her family. And you find out it was a double fake out because it was a dream all along. It was a fucking dream. <laughs> it's it's such a it's such a good scene. It's a good it's a it's a great couple of kills too. Let's it is. Cool. They first of all, you get a couple of kills right away, which I love to see. You know, you establish stakes immediately. You get get the body count up there. But then on top of that, I think that this does a really great job of sort of keeping you on edge about what is and what isn't real the entire time and this is such a a huge part of nightmare on elm street is sort of being unsure about what's a dream and what's real until it's too late and until freddy is already there and this makes sure that you know that that's what's going to be happening in this movie the whole time from the word go i mean that's really the scary thing about it Yeah, I mean, because like the whole film, I mean, you're you're not sure how much of it is a dream, how much of it might be happening in Nancy's head. Yeah. So when it finally becomes clear that it's actually all real and it's not just dreams, or rather, uh, the dreams have seeped into everything. Yeah. Um. That's the it, it becomes Ooh. really terrifying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like there's no escape. Absolutely, uh, and I I love that. That's per- that, I would say that that sort of inability to differentiate between what's real and fake uh, until. Until the moment when it, it springs on you is is really, I think, part of what makes Nightmare on Elm Street so special to me. Absolutely. Um, it, it's it's a huge part of it. And it really helps to, dis- uh, to distinguish itself from other slashers in a way that I think is important. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely in a class of its own because of that aspect for me personally. And so she, she does wake up because of an earthquake and she spies a cut on Chase's finger exactly like the one he got in her dream spooky (laughs) and there's now been five earthquakes in three weeks and heather has been receiving harassing calls from an obsessed fan although it has uh, subsided in the last two weeks did you know that the earthquakes were like a real thing that were happening that was happening at the time of filming i mean like obviously those weren't real earthquakes but (laughs) during filming there's so many earthquakes happening we're just like why don't we just add this to make it feel even more fucking real wow that's awesome i actually didn't know that and it it does knowing that does help to add it because there's all these sort of like news reports and people being like wow there's like a crazy amount of earthquakes going on right now and you sort of just take it as the world is shaking there's something trying to get out her world is sort of in upheaval but bringing that authenticity to it is just oh, so yeah. crucial. And 
Chase goes, he leaves for a job in Palm Springs, or so he says, and as he leaves, the house shifts again, and four slashes appear in the wall, like they were made by a claw. This is not the only time that this happens, but it's something that I really uh, love. Like, it's so... You could justify it to yourself as being like, oh, the wall ripped or like whatever. Like cracked or something, yeah. 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 Um, but it's so also, uh, it's so distinctly Freddy that you're... It's- yeah, it's a big Freddy, it's a big Freddy move. And <laughs> I mean, that's actually one thing about the movie that I find really interesting is that it, start, it, it, it pretty much starts out letting you know, okay, well, I mean, things are about to get really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't waste any time. I don't think there's even, like, any sense of, like, comfort at the beginning of the film or anything. Right. There, There is no normalcy for her because of what Freddy has done to her life. And, yeah. And, you know, this is, it's only getting even bigger. And she finds her son watching the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, and when she surprises him by turning it off, he <laughs> screams, screams bloody murder at her. <laughs> It really shocked me the first time I saw it. And, like, just this, like, because it's so out of nowhere. And it's a long scream, too. It's only interrupted by the phone ringing, but. Oh, yeah. And then they really lead up to it. Like, there's the sinister music. Mm-hmm. You can hear the audio from the TV. <laughs> and as soon as you sh- she shuts it off, that kid's just wails. <laughs> yeah, he, he sure does. And there's so much happening right away. We have this earthquake. We have the kills. We have this, uh, the kid freaking out. And then when she answers the phone, the stalker is back. He quotes Freddy Krueger's nursery rhyme at her in like this eerie Freddy-like voice, but we're not sure if this is actually a stalker, if the if the previous person had even actually been a stalker and not Freddy. Uh, there, there's sort of this unsurety that kind of permeates the entire thing. And when she hangs up on this, on whoever it is, Dylan says, someone's coming followed by a doorbell and you're like oh my god they're just not gonna let up off this throttle (laughs) (laughs) no it's uh it just the movie just wants to be as menacing as possible out the gate which works i think because because of how linked it is to real life definitely and finally when she does open it we get a little bit of relief when it is the first i guess fake out you'd call it where you think it's going to be freddie or something but it's just julie his babysitter played by tracy middendorf who i think uh is great in this movie oh she's fantastic dylan uh, asks heather to stay home but she has this interview regarding the 10th anniversary of the original nightmare on elm street movie and this is when the limo ride that we that we were talking about before comes into play and there is I think that the limo driver is really supposed to sort of represent the fan, the fan base. Mm-hmm. Like the objectifying fan. Exactly. I mean, he talks about how the first one is so obviously the best, and there's so much leering at her in the in the, in the the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, like you said, it, it feels very predatory, and there's sort of this expectation from a parasocial relationship that people expect the things that they like to like them back and you know oh, that's very that's very well put yeah i actually yeah you, you get that sense of ownership from this person like yeah yeah and and like we like we said she she puts up this wall but it's ineffective and you really feel for heather in this moment i think and and it only persists because the interview is also very uncomfortable mm-hmm. the the interviewer doesn't let her get any any words in uh he's he's leaning forward really putting the pressure on her and then in the middle of it, he surprises her with Freddy, uh, Robert England, tears through the like wall. Tear- 
it's which it's it's a fucking great scene too. It's like it's like a wrestling entrance. He like hams it up. He comes out. He does his <laughs> and little everyone's uh, like pose. screaming. There's like <laughs> music. Yeah, this scene I think is really fascinating, and I think it's one of the more integral scenes in the movie because. First of all, it's relevant with what's happening to Heather in this moment because Freddie comes out. He says, I'm back and badder than ever. So that is actually the case. And then on top of that, you see all of these people there and cheering for him, including kids who are wearing this mask and everything. And the interviewer is sitting there kind of shaming Heather Langenkamp being like, would you like, would you let your son watch this? Like, I, I, you know, it's not good for kids. And this sort of uh, dismissal of horror comes up more than once in this movie. It's definitely something that's on Wes Craven's mind. But there's also sort of this accusatory nature to it where Heather has nothing to do. <laughs> like, she didn't write the movie. So the way that they're sort of coming at Heather this way, it's very clear to me why she gets defensive and, and is sort of reluctant to engage on the way that they're treating her and the way that people who ostensibly are fans of hers treat her Mm -hmm. no she it's it's interesting because like um again she was the hero of the original film and she's the one who actually carries the burden of it Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. whereas like you know robert england is just fucking eating it up yeah he loves it he's just he's having a great fucking time yeah whereas for for her it's become something like a prison right it really has and and she has to pull him away in this scene after the interview where everyone is asking for his interview for his autograph and she literally has to yank him away, and uh, suddenly she gets a call that says, uh, hey, we want you to come into New Line Cinema. We're going to have the the driver bring you right away to meet with Bob Shea, who's one of the executive producers at New Line. And, and he's he's a real guy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And when she gets there, the receptionist doesn't recognize her. She's like, is he <laughs> expecting you? And again, there's just sort of this dismissal of someone who is so integral to the success but doesn't get to sort of experience the joys of it the way that robert does it feels a little like a commentary on some of the sexism that is definitely in play in the horror community you know how many people are know the names of the the quote-unquote final girls in the jason movies not many but yeah. I bet you that a lot of them can name the people who played Jason. I mean, that's just, that's part of it. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. It's like the whole world becomes Freddy in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like she is stuck in the role of being the victim. Right. It's it's tough for her. And Bob, he comes and gets her and he, he pitches her on reprising the role of Nancy in a new Nightmare movie. Unbeknownst to her, Chase has been working on this movie all along. But there is this aspect of him asking her to regress. Yeah, when she's and she's totally ready to move on, like, clearly. Yeah, yeah. She talks about how she, she's doing TV now, and, and she has her family, and she likes being home with her kid. And he pushes her on it, and he says, like, we need you to be Nancy again, and we need you to take this role and, and play it. And it's just really, really interesting to me the way that people in this movie treat heather langenkamp like she owes them something absolutely and it's it's interesting too because i mean like technically heather langenkamp joining this movie right i mean mm-hmm. she in a way yeah. she still she still is reprising nancy yeah i i, I do like though that it does sort of make her well she is very capable in the first one she does manage to to handle it and and in the third one but yeah by making her 
Heather instead of Nancy, it does sort of take the legacy in a different direction. It doesn't, it, she doesn't have that victimization already part of her backstory that, that I, I think is a, a, a good move. And it, it helps to make this a really interesting movie. And, and just so much of what's happened already to this point in setting up not just the meta narrative of this is real life, but the meta narrative of the way that people interact with horror creators and stuff. Uh, I, I just think it's really absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So uh, that's just part of it because like, so she is Nancy and she isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- I mean, that's the big conflict of the film. It's not even really just, it's not even so much about just her versus this great evil that takes the form of Freddy. It's actually there. The biggest conflict in the film, I think is actually her with herself. Like mm-hmm. the perception of being Nancy like never being able to grow beyond that. Definitely. And she does return home after after this meeting and she hears Dylan freaking out from outside. <laughs> so you know it's loud. Uh, and she rushes in and he hoarsely hisses at her, "Never sleep again." And it's like just classic creepy kid shit. He says that Rex saved him in his dream. And Heather pulls out his rad T-Rex stuffed animal, now featuring four big slashes. Paul Marks. Oh, my God. Oh, man. That's that's the good shit right there. <laughs> I kind of love that, too. I mean, there's something about... I mean, when I was a kid, I... I I was a stuffed animal bitch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, that was my comfort when I was under the covers in the dark. Mm-hmm. I had Mr. Bear. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. I had, <laughs> I had Tiger, and Tiger kept me safe. There right? you go. Shout out to Tiger. Shout out to Tiger. So I, I actually I loved that that the guard that his uh, guardian is quite literally a stuffed animal, and that's yeah. one of the things that are that are keeping this uh, this evil at bay. Yeah, I love that, and and again, it, it sort of plays with the um, the way that kids' imaginations and daydreams sort of do carry over, and so the way that he plays with Rex as this big dream guardian, uh, you know, it's I think that it it makes sense to me that it would also kind of translate into the nightmares as well. And so the fact that it all genuinely works in addition to being a cool and fun idea, um, I just think it's rad. Now, my only issue, it's a complete missed opportunity. They should have gotten one of those animatronic T-Rexes from Jurassic Park. Oh, and yeah. Featured it in the dream sequence, but you <laughs> know what? It's it's fine. It's okay. I would have been all over that shit, man. <laughs> it was, I, <laughs> uh, Jurassic Park is one of my favorite movies. I mean, that's, Wow, I, I mean, know. It's, a, take, it's a great, take, it's a right? great <laughs> fucking movie. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that would have been absolutely sick. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like if any series could pull it off. I think Nate, Nightmare on Elm Street could easily have Freddy fighting a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and I think people would accept that. Yeah, but hey, other writers out there, try and incorporate a giant animatronic T Rex into your movies, and let's see what happens. <laughs> 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 and then uh, Doctor Julie takes him to the kitchen to sell him up so rex survives to fight another day heather calls chase worried about dylan and she finds out that the two men from the opening dream didn't come to work and so he's you know really swamped there but he he does rush home and the camera pans to show the glove that he's been working on which we literally just saw is missing. I love this this camera pan. I think it's you know it's your classic it's, simple it's, show it's don't the best tell. trope Oh, yeah, man. it's like, it, yeah, show it, and then pan, and then pans away and looks back, and it's not fucking there, and you're like, okay, this motherfucker's <laughs> gonna die. <laughs> he sure is. And, and Heather 
uh, it kind of keeps cutting back and forth between the two of them. And Heather is reading Dylan, Hansel, and Gretel, specifically the part about pushing the witch into the oven. And you're like, oh, I wonder if this is going to come up again. (laughs) Before she leaves, uh, Dylan shows her the sweet guard setup that he has with Rex in place to keep, quote, the mean old man with the claws at the foot of his bed. And he suggests that Heather get a guard as well. I'm, I'm curious how you feel about the fact that he sort of just alludes to Freddy. I, I love it. I- yeah, because she's worked so hard to stop him from being exposed to it. And the fact that he's not like, oh, it's Freddy trying to get me. Uh, I, I think that it does really work. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, that's part because like she's I mean, because we're supposed to believe that he doesn't know anything about Freddy because she hasn't right. exposed him to it. But the fact that she that he cites the mean old man with the claw, which is uh, a really scary way of uh of labeling freddy yeah <laughs> um which i think really i mean and it really makes him an alien horror again and i think that i think that dylan's exposure to him to the real evil and not like the movie character is part of that he can't even he can't even name it you know this is his exposure right this is this is what he knows he doesn't know the hollywood history of freddy and and how far he's come along in that time he just he's just seeing this guy and it really does sort of establish him as a scary being again from that child perspective naming a thing is knowing a thing so for mm-hmm. for Dil- for Dylan to lack any context of Freddy Krueger right mm-hmm. i mean that and that's what the movie's trying to do for like an audience you and me who are super familiar with Freddy Krueger it's trying to make him totally alien to us again right and, and uh, i think successfully <laughs> so. absolutely Chase, on his drive home, starts to doze off, and Freddy's claw comes through the seat and just slashes the shit out of him, and he crashes and dies, and I I like this, again, sort of this unsurety of what's real and what's not, there's these, like, soft lights behind him while he's driving, and, you know, the claw first comes out and just, like, kind of, like, taps his junk a little bit, and then... (laughs) Like scratches at his balls. Freddy's a real <laughs> fucking pervert, and that that has kept. He sure is. Oh yeah, you know if there's one characteristic that's gonna translate through. Oh god, yeah, that's that's very much him. Because you, could, I mean, you could just write that off as he fell asleep at the wheel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that's what they tell. Uh, I keep calling her Nancy. That's what well, they. That's, that's it. I mean, <laughs> she, <laughs> the two of them are so wrapped up in each other, and and yeah, they do tell they do tell Heather that that's how he died. And that she's like, look at these huge claw marks on his chest later. And, and they're like, uh, this is why we don't show people the body. <laughs> and yeah, it's it, and there's almost something like suspicious about the fact that they don't want to show her the claw marks. Yeah, it is, it is kind of weird. Uh, but, you know, he crashes and dies. And at the same time, Dylan wakes up from Rex fighting and Heather awakes with a start as well. And there's sort of this feeling of Freddy tying them together even in the dream world, through this trauma that they're all having. Mm-hmm. And we get a classic Spielberg pull the focus back while pushing the camera forward. <laughs> oh, I, I love it. I love it. I, I, I know it's I know it's like kind of corny now, but I fall for oh, it no. every time. I, I love it too. And, and, you know, there's a reason that it got as overused as it did in the past because it is super effective. And the way that it sort of creates this feeling of shock and disbelief and the way that the background pulls so hard Mm -hmm. it's it's really great and the police have come to her door to tell heather the fate of her husband and she there's i think a real feeling of guilt 
on her face as well because she's the one who told him to come back and to rush home and and Mm -hmm. there's a sort of a lot of emotions at play in this moment and heather langenkamp does an amazing job of communicating them yeah no it's very it's very interesting because like i actually so i'll I'll be real i hate chase (laughs) when i watch this movie my first thought is i hate this fucking guy (laughs) but um at, at that scene like you really feel for heather and dylan they lose i mean they lose like a third of their family yeah it's definitely tough and that's the beauty of this is that even if you do hate him he's not in it very long you get a nice kill out of it so. <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a it's a pretty good kill i don't i don't i don't hate chase enough that i want him to die <laughs> i mean that's so and when he finally does die it's very sad it is it really is and but chase is also the worst <laughs> well it, it, he, the way that sh- that heather i think reacts to this death not only in this exact moment but when she does go to see the body Uh, It really sort of communicates, I think, the relationship that they have uh, and that she is so devastated by this. I mean, the cop implies that it's gruesome and she insists on, like, pulling it back. And there's this while she's going to see it, even that feels dreamlike. You know, the she's Mm -hmm. wandering through the morgue hallways and the camera is kind of weaving around and. It, it's just really great. I mean, it, it seems like a nightmare, and then in the back, when she's like, wa- she walks in, like you can see in the background people working on bodies. Yeah. Um, and and they don't show it too clearly, but I mean, just from like what you can see, it's very gory. Definitely. And um, the coroner pulls back the four the sheet, reveals the four slashes on her chest. Uh, she pukes in, I think, a very visceral reaction. It's very. Uh, like I, I feel it when she's like sees yeah. the body and just immediately her body just like rejects it. It's it's very intense. They go to have the funeral the next day or when or a couple days later. I don't even know, but they go to have the funeral and a huge gale disturbs the coffin. And as Heather lunges for it, she trips on Rex and smacks her head on the metal bar and she wakes up in quotes and <laughs> there's um a very disturbing scene i feel like where freddy tries to drag dylan into the coffin which becomes a pit it's o- it's always waking up in quotes with the nightmare on elm street very true and uh the corpse of chase grabs heather and it's just like leaking blood from every orifice and he just says stay with me and oh my god god like there's yeah give this give this woman a break yeah for real and she does finally actually wake up and john saxon who played her father in nightmare on elm street one comforts her that night we see dylan entranced again watching nightmare on elm street and she wakes him up as he sleepwalks uh, and says that he can't uh, he says that he can't sleep in his room chanting the rhyme again and saying that he heard it in his bed that there were little kids <laughs> chanting the song and singing in his sheets. Truly upsetting to me to like just the idea that this is coming out of nowhere and like it's it's freaky stuff and it's a, it's a scary rhyme too. It makes it makes it terrifying again for sure. I mean like it does with a lot of things from Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street. Yeah, and uh, and so Heather does let him sleep in her bed and uh, Heather talks to John about Dylan because she's freaked out by what's going on at, with at him. the playground right yeah or, and yeah did you know that was supposed to be johnny depp originally i saw that that, that he had like been like uh i want to invite him but also he's too big now and i'm scared he's gonna be yeah, and then johnny us. depp later was like <laughs> oh i would have done it if you just asked but yeah. I, I i do love um i do love oh god what's his name again john saxon um, yeah I, I i mean i love his portrayal i love like his character in the movie yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that he does sort of have this sort of like fatherly 
relationship to her just because of what we know from the first movie i I think it does provide an interesting aspect to it where i think it would have been cool to have johnny depp in it just as like an homage to the original but i think that they made it work with what they had and and i really like john's character in it I, i would say he is the most stable presence in the movie where he oh yeah is very methodical he has genuine advice for her <laughs> like it, yeah he's he he's like he's the one who's like having the most sane time yeah, yeah. <laughs> like because because robert england and wes craven certainly are not no. um so he's definitely a stabilizing force in nancy's life at that time yeah and he suggests that she seek medical attention for dylan and herself if she's worried about it uh after she admits that she's scared about mental illness running in her family and so this sort of brings in another element of her being worried that these are delusions and that it's not actually Freddy coming through, which, you know, I think that that's a very understandable fear, especially if you do have a family history of mental illness. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious how much of that was based on um, the real Heather Langenkamp. It seems like uh, if, if that is real for her, I mean, boy, I, I think it's really feels like kind of dorky to say that it's a brave choice for her to like incorporate it into her into her portrayal here but uh, i do think that the fact that if it, if it is real that she was able to sort of incorporate so much of her real life into it and sort of open up the like exposing it to the light does help to disinfect which is what the whole movie is about really right so. right it's all working together man it's all great i love it <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh and dylan this whole time has been climbing to the friggin' top of the playground. Oh my god, I that that scene gives me so much fucking anxiety. That's why <laughs> that's why I can't have a fucking kid because I know if I had a kid, that kid's gonna do some stupid shit like that. <laughs> also, why did they make that playground toy so fucking tall? <laughs> like, I, whose idea I was don't that? Know. It is. I I will say that if I was a kid and I was on that, uh, I was on that playground, I would have been like, this is the dopest shit. I would have been in that. Really, you would you would have climbed it. I see. I I'm terrified of heights. Oh, that well, that'll do it. <laughs> So, unfortunately, there's no Heights horror movie, because that would probably really fuck me up. I'm sure it would. Oh, my God. Uh, They should do that. Sort of create, like, a vertigo, but more horrific. If you're listening out there, someone write that. (laughs) Please make that fucking movie. (laughs) Traumatize me. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, well, and so Dylan, he he does climb to the top, and he's reaching up to the sky. And there's this great, great score from J. Peter Robinson as he falls. I think that the music in this is one of my favorite aspects of it. I love... Oh, it's it's great. It's so... It's like... And it's so classic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's, what, that's one thing I like about the soundtrack in the movie, because if I'm... This came out in, what, 1994? Yeah. So, by this point, I mean, like, a lot of things aesthetically have already changed in movies, but this movie just, like, hues to the original, right? Yeah. In terms of, like, its aesthetic choices, including the music, and that's part of what gives it such a weird, dreamy, spooky vibe. Absolutely. I think that it's it's used super effectively, and when Heather runs over, like I said, she friggin' books it, she get that lady on a 40-yard sprint, and... <laughs> 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 He catches Dylan, and Dylan says, God wouldn't take me. A reference to their conversation the previous night about his dad and how he's in heaven now. And it's like, it's such a child in mourning thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know how much that specific scene has to relate necessarily to Freddy. Right. It's just more the sense of, like, this kid who really, really wants to be with his dad. Yeah, there's sort of this fear that Heather is having about him not being attacked by Freddy, but just being a normal kid in mourning. I think it does. This scene is, first of all, it's, it's very it's, sad, yeah. but it also does help to sort of establish that as like, 
well, is it Freddy or is it just like a sad little boy? It's it's really great stuff. Yeah, and I think that scene also really cements like the mother son relationship. That mm-hmm. and the the one of them in um in like bed the night before. Yeah, they go home and she gets another letter from her stalker that has a page with a big letter E on it, and she puts it in a drawer with several others. Again, this I love that this example of sort of show don't tell where you don't need to. She doesn't need to say like the 14th letter I've received in a month. <laughs> like she just has a drawer full of them. And that's how, you know, she calls Robert England and I love seeing him like this, just sort of like a genial older guy with fun round glasses, puttering around and painting. <laughs> like, oh, it's, it's, it's great. Cause it's like, it's, it's a, it's such a great contrast to Freddy Krueger. So antithetical to him. Definitely. But the scene is interesting. Cause it also makes him seem kind of sinister. Yes. He, so he says that he asked Wes about his progress on the script and that he'd made it about as far as Dylan trying to reach God, which, Oh my God, that <laughs> obviously freaks her out. Freaks me out too. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's really creepy that they knew in advance. It's just at that point, you know, because this movie is really trying to fuck with you. <laughs> it sure is. And, they make plans to chat tomorrow, and we see that in direct contrast to the pleasant landscapes all around, he's currently painting the poster for Pink Floyd's The Wall, featuring even more evil than normal Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... I, I love this, this scene. I think it's really great that he vanishes after yeah. this scene. I was curious about it, because I was wondering if there was something that had gotten cut or something. And Robert England said that initially the plan was that he would have like woken up and seen like a giant Freddy spider that would have like wrapped him up and, and it would have been like an homage to the fly. Um, and that he would have woken up in a start next to his wife and then disappeared the next day, sort of fleeing. But I really love the way that you don't get an answer in, in the way that it is fine. The final edit, you don't know, whether he's dead, uh, hiding, you don't know what the deal is. And yeah. I think that that uncertainty is what makes it work. What I really like about that scene is the implication that it's not just Heather, actually, who's experiencing this, like, this sudden deluge of evil. Yeah, that's a, an, a really cool aspect of it as well. And the fact that he's not even really willing to acknowledge it that much, he, he's he's painting it, but he doesn't mention it to Heather, despite the fact that he's like, oh, more evil, more sinister. And like, you're like, oh, yeah. how do you know this, man? <laughs> <laughs> and then it shows the painting. You're like, oh, God damn it. Yeah, it's it's really great. And we get some more really cool camera work in the next scene where she like like i said she makes this plan to go see him the next day and she goes to bed and there's some really cool camera work as the camera pans around her bed and we see the claws emerge on her husband's side of the bed and sort of work their way up towards her face um i didn't even notice that was chase's side of the bed yeah it's oh my gosh oh man there's just so much work in there and then it's right there it's right about to get her and then a clatter of knives downstairs wakes her up quote again in quotes (laughs) and she freaks out at the shredded sheets but then goes downstairs and finds dylan has made himself a knife hand (laughs) singing the lullaby 
I would just never let that kid watch another movie again. I'm like, he's just way too impressionable. The way that this kid is singing, with, I'm like, uh, there, it's so freaky. I think that this I is know. an incredibly effective use of that trope of, like, the creepy little kid. Especially when there's sort of this implication of, like, Freddy had said, like, oh, I touched him, Heather. Or, and, like... Oh, yeah, because he, he calls on... Um, she gets the phone call. Yeah. And then he says that, which of course is a is a nod to his backstory. Yeah. And then he does such a classic perverted Freddy thing, which is lick her through the phone. Oh, it's it's great. Uh, it's just like the I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. <laughs> yeah. From the original. There's so much that's working here. So before, we, before I actually uh, jumped ahead a little bit because Dylan tries to kill her and then she falls out of bed. This was another dream. Was but it? Then, oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> And then, well, so that's the thing is that this sort of double dream sequence that they keep using is a particularly great example of how they're keeping you off balance. And I love the scene that follows it, which is when she gets that phone call. She goes downstairs for real and she does find Dylan chanting never sleep again. And he seems to have figured out the letters spelling answer the phone just in time for the phone to ring so so freaky I and, mean, this and kid then that's really when freddie does it right oh yeah yes. no that, that kid yeah no that, it's he, he he's like such a creepy kid which is a- great and absolutely it's, and it, it's the fact that it's her it's like this isn't like some creepy kid that she doesn't know she can't just be like go away you goblin this is her kid <laughs> <laughs> like so it's like it's her you know she's like intimately linked to it right whatever's going on with him yeah so she, she gets the phone or she gets the she answers the phone freddie does the i touched him licks her mouth and Ugh. Dylan starts puking up foam before collapsing, and the foam also comes out of the receiver. Oh, gosh, yeah. This this saying of, I touched him, it does work as sort of like a pedophile reference, but also it works as, like, he's tainted. I, I have infected him. The touch of Freddy is upon him. He's not free from my influence or power. Right. Oh, man. And w- which is, like, an interesting thing, too, because, like, you think about... Uh, people try very hard to keep their kids away from, like, the horrible bad things in the world, which, you know, makes sense. You don't want to traumatize your children, but there's... It's it's actually kind of impossible, right, to, like, prevent your kid from having any kind of exposure to this stuff, and whether it's, like, I don't know, in the form of the news or horror movies in this case. Yeah, I mean, God, the news is practically worse than most horror movies these oh days. i i completely agree and the fact that actually i think like the fact that he technically isn't supposed to watch the movies and he's not supposed to have a context for it but it, it yeah. affects him anyways <laughs> right I, I mean even even if you extrapolate this outside of the context of this movie when when heather talks about how everybody knows freddy that's true i mean there's so much sort of just cultural osmosis that happens where if you're a kid and you're in school you hear people talking about these things. You're not going to be like, oh, I have no idea what Freddy is because people are talking about him, especially in 1994. It's the 10-year anniversary of, of Nightmare on Elm Street. And there's so much sort of cultural baggage that goes along with it that just saying, I'm blocking it from your view and you just never get to look and, at and it. And you can't. Is, it's yeah. not realistic. It's not realistic. Absolutely not. And, and, and in fact, it can make the problem worse, right? Definitely. And she she takes Dylan to the hospital where we meet Dr. Hefner, played by Fran Bennett. And she sort of oh, exemplifies this, this attitude. She judgmentally insists that horror films tip unstable children over the edge. And this is sort of a sentiment left over from the days of the, quote, video nasties. And... 
Dr. Hefner is a nod to Richard Hefner, who is the head of the MPAA and just absolutely slashed the shit out of Wes Craven's movies. Oh my gosh. I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, so much of Wes Craven's uh, movies, like Last House on the Left and everything, the tagline was literally, it's only a movie. And the the MPAA, through his whole career, was like, they made him go back and re-edit so, so many times because of his intense gore and and still making it feel real at times too i mean especially last house on the left feels very real but oh yeah that's 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 quite the movie you know nightmare on elm street terrifying as it is can be a fun watch last house Mm -hmm. on the left is not a very fun movie (laughs) no definitely not and uh you know when you have that as your debut and you sort of make an enemy of the head of the mpaa it's it's not ideal and so you know this sort of judgmental person who uh, has this disdain for something that i think is great Wes craven thinks is great a lot of people think is great and uh and you know when you hear someone dismiss it as just oh it's it tips unstable children over the edge uh, it's, it's, I think, very representative of sort of Wes Craven's uh, disdain for people like that. The doctor thinks that uh, Dylan is a schizophrenic and gives him some meds to put him to sleep, but he cheeks it like a pro until oh the nurse God. is gone. <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this kid. I, I mean, I've been to the hospital before and I knew kids you would do that. Yeah, it's, he, he pulls it off with a plum. Oh, it's great. <laughs> he, I mean, like he, he really goes for the performance. He like closes his fucking eyes and everything. As soon as they walk out, he's like, no, fuck that. <laughs> Heather gets in the car and she calls Robert again, Robert England. But his voicemail says that they're out of town and will be for some time. <laughs> Meanwhile, God. the town is literally crumbling around her thanks to the earthquakes. And one other. So, like I said, I was curious about what had happened. The reason that I looked this up is because I was wondering if Robert had sort of fully transformed into his role the way that Heather and John Saxon do later. And uh, I, I think that that would have been a, a neat idea. But uh, like I said, the way that it works out, um, I think is really great. She, instead of visiting Robert, goes to visit Wes. And uh, this is when we get that great scene that we were talking about before where he's oh, like, yeah. I'm a... I have precognition and I know everything. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great fucking scene. And it's also like, it's wild that he wrote this about himself. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it, it's so great. Cause it like, I, I mean, like, I also think like it does speak to the truth of what it means to be a creative mm-hmm. because like, I mean, when you're making art, a lot of times what you're dealing with is like, uh, you know, to put it one way trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's way, it's ways of contextualizing that. So you have some, so you can clearly deal with it instead of having it be this thing that lingers in your subconscious. Definitely. I, I was looking into Wes Craven's like actual attitudes and, and his quotes when I was doing some research for this. And in the scene, he says that he's been dreaming that the Nightmare on Elm Street movies captured a demon in the form of Freddy. But thanks to his familiarity, watering down of his essence and eventual death of the story, that prison is gone. And the demon enjoys being Freddy, so he's trying to come through to reality, and Heather is the gatekeeper, thanks to its playing by story logic. And the only way to gate him is to make another movie. And this monologue is so interesting to me when you pair it with the way that he views horror. And I I really love this quote from him where he says, Horror movies are like boot camp for the psyche. In real life, human beings are packaged in the flimsiest of packages, threatened by real and sometimes horrifying dangers, events like Columbine. But the narrative form 
puts these fears into a manageable series of events. It gives yes. us a way of thinking rationally about our fears. And when you pair this attitude that he has with the attitude of the interviewer at the beginning and the doctor, um, I think it really sort of crystallizes the message of this movie. I completely agree. I mean, that's just the thing, really. Mm-hmm. Didn't he originally make Glass House on the Left to... Wasn't it in response to the horrific violence that people were seeing from the Vietnam War? Um, I'll be honest, I don't remember, but I would believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that sort of would play into this sort of... Um, the idea of the tagline being, it's just a movie. This This horrific violence that you're seeing on the screen is as bad as what you're seeing every night on the news. I mean, there's, I think there's so much sort of wrapped up into that and the way that you are able to use it, not just to sort of um, work your way through uh, violence that might've happened or that you might've witnessed, but trauma in a variety of forms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is something that I think Wes Craven is really, really interested in. There was another quote that I found that I also really liked where he said, you don't enter the theater and pay your money to be afraid. You enter the theater and pay your money to have the fears that are already in you when you go to the theater dealt with and put into a narrative. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's an exorcism. Exactly. Exactly. Stories and narratives are one of the most powerful things in humanity, and they're devices for dealing with the chaotic danger of existence. And I think oh, that he really hit the nail on the head there. It's... I, I'm... Uh, rip. Yeah. He's, he's so... Oh my gosh, I wish, I feel like Ari Aster is sort of similar in that regard to his approach. I mean, they make wildly different movies, mm-hmm. but I think I think it's a very similar approach. Especially, I think it's noticeable um, in Midsummer, where you sort of, s- the, the very beginning of it and the way that Florence Pugh's character is sort of trying to process her grief of, of her whole family dying, mm-hmm. and, you know... Ari Aster has said that this movie is about, like, a breakup, and I I think you're totally right about the way that he is sort of picking up that torch and running with it. I'm really excited to see where Ari Aster goes in his future. Do you like Hereditary and Midsommar, or no? Oh, I I loved those movies. Those are, I mean, when it comes to modern horror, that's pretty much most of what I watch. Nice. Absolutely great. And I do think that there is some of that Wes Craven to him. Absolutely. And I think that's why I like his film so much, because to me, Wes Craven is probably the greatest horror director I mean, I know that maybe, I don't know if that's controversial to some people, but that's what I think. The beauty of his work is that it is so varied that you have Nightmare on Elm Street, you have Scream, you have Scream, Last yeah. House on the left, and, and it manages to capture horror in such varied tones. You know, I, I think it could definitely be argued that he's the best uh, horror creator out there. So. Yeah, for, I mean, for me at least. Yeah, definitely. And the way that he works as a writer and a director is certainly, I think, puts him on another level as well. And there's an amazing transition here that he that he has where it's revealed that this whole conversation was is scripted. already in the script and the script says fade to black and so and, the movie does. And then it fades does. to black. Oh my God. So, oh, so good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really love that transition and it cuts to Heather researching pediatric illnesses and the TV turns itself on twice to make sure that she sees a news story about the two guys being found slashed to death in a field, the two guys from the very beginning. This is followed by another earthquake, and Freddy jumps out of the closet at Heather. And it's, I wouldn't say it's unexpected, but it did still really startle me. Oh, yeah. He, he asks, miss me? And he starts going after her. And 
I, I really like this scene because it's the first time that he's really there in his full body and he starts going after her in a way that lets you know that this is a different form of him. There's none of the usual playing around of teasing her of weird situational irony <laughs> that yeah. lead to their death. He's just swinging at her. Yeah, this isn't a practical joke. Yeah. He does get a slash in on her arm before vanishing thanks to another tremor. And she runs to go check on Dylan in the hospital and find Julie is there too after also having a dream about him. So this is sort of permeating so many people in a, in a really interesting way that the, cl- the closer you are to this family the more Freddy is sort of sinking his claws into you. Dr. Hefner treats Heather's wounds, and she also gives us the impression that there was, in fact, no earthquake, which I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, she also mentions Dylan's fear of Freddy, and she, like, sort of seems to, like, imply that Heather is abusing him and, like, not letting him sleep at all and suggests that he remain there under observation. I think, actually, that Doctor is such an interesting character. Not, I mean, it's partly because of, uh, not only because of the reference to the guy from the MPAA, but, um, like, she's very much emblematic of uh, institutionalized mental health. (laughs) Right. And, like, the amount of gaslighting and abuse they do, actually. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they treat Heather like shit in this movie. The movie is really... Now that I'm thinking about it, the movie is actually a great example of paranoid fiction. Definitely. Heather feels like she can't trust anyone because people like Dr. Hefner, the minute that she starts talking to her about what's actually happening, Dr. Hefner is like, this is crazy. Uh, You're the one who's abusing Dylan and we're going to take him away from him and put him in a foster home. Yeah. The minute that she starts reaching out for help, she gets slapped in the face for it, basically. Yeah, they punish her for that, yeah. And she goes to see Dylan, and she sort of nods off, and Dylan wakes up and says, I'm almost there, in the Freddy voice. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Very freaky. And then he pukes up this, like, black sludge. And when the doctor comes in, they strap her down and then go to cut the evil out of Dylan. And he turns into a grinning Freddy. It was another dream. Oh, my. yeah. That th- I think at this point, right, it's just pretty relentless. Like, yeah, you don't know. If, you don't know who's like, what's a dream. You don't know what's real at this point. It's all out the window, which is very nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, you don't know. But and it's not only that you're uncomfortable in that way. You're uncomfortable because it is a fucked up scene. Like this yeah. doctor like straps a bunch of scalpels onto her hand and like raises it up. And it's really just done so well. Uh, I love the way that that they handle this. And when Heather wakes up for real this time, she now has a gray streak in her hair, just like in the original. And she rushes to go check on Dylan, who's vanished, uh, supposedly being taken downstairs for more testing. We get another classic reference with, do you have a pass? And Heather retorting, screw your pass. (laughs) I love that scene. Heather gets held there by security. This is, again this gaslighting that's happening here because she's being questioned by the doctor about abusing Dylan and there's they're literally holding her there like they are they are shoving her into this chair and they have two security guards there to keep her there it's like the amount of effort that they're putting into dismissing this woman's fear is 
it would be laughable if it wasn't so terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it feels very true. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I can't even count on uh, my hand, like, the number of people I've known who have had experiences like that with mental health professionals. Yeah, it's it's really rough. And while this is happening, Julie is trying unsuccessfully to keep the nurses from sedating Dylan. But these oh, nurses are tricky as fuck. Oh, my God. It's so, yeah, don't, yeah, don't, they, don't they fake fake her out for a moment? Yeah. The the one nurse is like, oh, I'm going to sedate him. And Julie is like, no, you're not. And the other one is like, psych, it was me all pulls, along. And then pulls out a syringe <laughs> from behind her. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I got to say, I think Julie in close contention for MVP with Rex because she lays an amazing punch on this nurse. Oh, I fucking love Julie, which... <laughs> Uh, is about to be painful very soon because I, I'm ride or die for Julie. Unfortunately, it seems like it's die. Yeah. Yeah, she's so great, though, because she gets she gets this punch in, and then she also threatens to stab the other nurse with a random with this, syringe. Yeah. And she's like, I know what's in that one. Do you know what's in what's this in one? This? <laughs> oh, my. It's so good. She's so funny. And the fact that she is willing to co- sort of go this far without even really knowing what's happening, I really represents her loyalty and her pa- and her care for Dylan. She's part of the family. It's really great stuff. And unfortunately, Dylan, having been uh, sedated, does fall asleep. And Freddy just brutally kills Julie. He does give a one-liner at that point. He does. Well, so he in this moment where he does give a one-liner, it's also in a moment when he is calling back to the original movie, where Julia's death is very similar to Tina's death in the original, mm-hmm. where he slashes her and then drags her up the walls and across the ceiling. And so the idea of this demon enjoying being Freddy and like reaching into the past and and what he knows about these movies to be like, oh, okay, uh, here's the point where I do a one-liner <laughs> and yeah. I drag this lady up the wall. It wasn't like the kind of one-liner that Freddy does that sometimes makes you laugh. It's it's no. deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's what I also think is very uncomfortable in this scene is that the nurses see it. They oh, yeah. see Julie getting friggin' massacred in this room. And yeah, and they don't see Freddy, but they see her, like, just fucking gliding up the wall with blood trailing behind her oh god it's 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 terrifying and dylan leaves the hospital sleepwalking across the freeway while heather chases him and freddie taunts and dangles him before traffic and like gosh i i i know it's a movie and i can differentiate reality from fiction but this scene is genuinely the most frightening to me because like this is such a real scenario in terms of like a kid just walking across the freeway that i'm like what if it fucking happened (laughs) how do like you see all these people on the on the freeway like skidding off to the side and everything and like i bet a lot of people died on that freeway that night yeah no it's like yeah there's like a huge pile up isn't there yeah yeah and i mean there are literally like tractor trailers and stuff involved yeah um Heather ducks at one point for the tractor trailer to go over her. Right. This was done with a green screen, but I mean, it still, it looks great. And it took about a hundred takes to get the shot right. And <laughs> oh, really? Apparently Heather Langenkamp literally couldn't walk the next day because she was so uh, sore from basically doing like a bunch of squats. <laughs> <laughs> she probably has powerful ass thighs though. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. After that. <laughs> <laughs> She was like, like well, I'll just keep this rolling now. Like a hundred fucking, like, you know, just lunges and shit. <laughs> and uh, she gets nailed by a car. She gets, like, tossed out the window, and she loses track of Dylan. 
but she goes to the house in search of him, and she she does find Dylan there, relatively unharmed and clutching Rex, along with John Saxon. And I, th- this scene is so great because this is the point in which, like, John Saxon's like, "Oh, we, okay, you know what, um, Heather, you and I have to have like a serious conversation about this now." Mm-hmm. And then they walk outside, and suddenly they're in Nightmare on Elm Street. They're in the movie, and John's portraying his character, and Heather's dressed like Nancy. Yeah, it it also sort of starts to permeate even a little bit before that because yeah. while they're in the house, he does call her Nancy instead right. of Heather. Oh gosh. And it's it's a really shocking moment, but it's sort of handled pretty subtly the first time where they don't really call attention to it yeah, at all. Yeah, cuz I I didn't even fucking notice that. I think it's really great the way that they do that and it's you're sort of like did he just call her Nancy? And then, and then uh, suddenly, oh, he's oh, in his fucking cop uniform. Oh god! Oh my god! It's so good. And Dylan's bed shakes, and uh, and fog emerges, and the shape of Freddy rises from under the covers. And Heather realizes that Saxon has become Don Thompson, the dad from the first one. And her street and the exterior of her house and both of their clothes have transformed as reality sort of starts to overlap with this make-believe realm of Freddy's. I think it's really great. And Heather embraces the Nancy role as Wes told her that she would have to. When uh, John Saxon is like, be safe, sweetie. And, and she's like, I will. I love you too, daddy. And mm-hmm. it's this sort of like, you see her make the decision to embrace this role. Yeah, it's because like most of the film, she's running away from it. But at that point, I mean, I think she suddenly switches into the hero, right? Right. And she knows there's nowhere left for her to go, especially since Freddy has fully emerged into reality and kidnapped Dylan. And I mean, she goes inside and the the TV is unplugged. And it plays another scene from the original movie, which I thought is really great. And Heather finds a trail of Dylan's sleeping pills call back to Hansel and Gretel Gretel. (laughs) and uh, she follows it finally finding a torn up Rex god R.I.P. to Rex R.I.P. we didn't get to see that CGI dinosaur fight Freddy R.I.P. I know messed up messed up but uh eventually she takes the sleeping pills and she uses this to enter the dream world in pursuit of them Oh, isn't she? Doesn't she just take one after the other? <laughs> yeah, she's she's yeah. pounding them. It's it's intense, and she follows this tent of of sheets that turns into a slide, and then like sewers, and eventually this sort of construct of Freddy's boiler room. And the set design in this piece is just rad as hell. Oh yeah, because it, it's it's way more than just his boiler room. It's like it's this whole dark fantasy realm. Like definitely the kind of place you'd imagine an ancient evil would be imprisoned. Yeah, and I mean, she literally slides out of, like, uh, a slide that is in the shape of, like, his face, and she, like, emerges from his mouth. It feels kind of, like, jokery, which I kind of like, but uh, I, I think it's fun. I agree that it does feel like, if I was, like, what kind of place would Freddy have? That sort of, like, narcissism, I think, is really sort of ingrained into his character. Yeah. Which is part of why he does play with his his victims that much yeah i think that it does it really works with the character and she finds a script here that describes what's happening presently and she's attacked by freddy and this is the moment where we get the one-liner that i was mentioning about before where it actually did really make me laugh where he like shoves her face into a pile of snakes and says pick a pet for the rug rat bitch <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that one, it just really got me. I thought it was really funny. And luckily, we also get a great payoff where she grabs one of the snakes and just just shoves it into his eye. 
Oh, it's so good. That's why Nancy's the fucking best. Hell yeah. She's she never lets it get her down. She's always fighting to the very end. And this sort of fight scene that they have here, um, I think is really great in showing that, especially because the the power of family. (laughs) (laughs) She now has someone at her side. Dylan uh, stabs him in the leg. She sta- uh, he stabs Freddy in order to let her get away. And Freddy chases Dylan into the furnace, stretching his arm to reach him, and then stretching oh God, his jaw yeah. like a snake to eat him. This is a, this is like a half reference to a Freddy of yore. There's the, the Freddy snake in in part three, which uh, I thought was interesting that the, the only reference that isn't directly to the original is to the movie that Heather was in and that Craven did help with that script a little bit. So I thought that was an interesting tidbit, the fact that they were both involved in it less and there's only one reference to it. (laughs) But Freddy, uh, yeah, so Freddy chased him and luckily for Dylan, Heather made it back and she shoves Freddy into the furnace. Again, very Hansel and Gretel. Mm -hmm. And he's distracted and he's like wrapping his tongue around Heather's face, which is very gross. Very classic (laughs) Freddy though. Yes, definitely. But this allows Dylan to escape, grabbing the knife and stabbing the tongue, which splits and becomes forked like a snake's. So again, there's sort of this snake imagery at play here, which uh, it's, it's it's all working. There's so much happening here. And they close the furnace and they light it. And this destroys both the monster and his reality uh, as he turns from Freddy into the actual demon before exploding into a ball of flames. I'm curious what you think about sort of this ultimate destruction of him and how the movie handles it, like showing him become the actual demon. Would you have preferred that he still kept the form of Freddy or are you glad to see this? That's a great question. Um, You know, I I guess like the demon doesn't excite me that much. I I think Freddy himself is already such a good representation of that kind of fear. But I mean, like, it's fine. I mean, like, and it it does really sell the point where it's like they're not fighting the fictional character per se, but I guess the fictional character is really, uh, it was like just skin for it to wear. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, which is true of fear. I mean, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's another great piece of score happening here that I really liked. And uh, Freddy's death in this film is, uh, of course, very similar to his original death when he was burned alive by a group of vigilante parents, including uh, Nancy's parents. And Dylan and Heather emerge from under his blankets. And Heather finds a copy of the film's events in screenplay form at the foot of her bed with a thank you from Wes for defeating Freddy and playing Nancy one last time. And her victory, helping to imprison this guy in the fictitious world once again, Dylan asks Nancy, or excuse me, he asks Heather if it's a story. And Heather agrees that it is for opening the script and reading from it to him. Like a fairy tale. Exactly. It's. I think it's so interesting the way... This is such a departure from the way that she sheltered him at the beginning and the way that if you had asked Nancy, she probably would have come closer to the side of the interviewer and the doctor at the beginning of this movie, where she talks about how she doesn't let her son watch it. And, you know, she's constantly running from this role. And and there's sort of a lot of overprotectiveness, it feels like, sort of wrapped up into it. And by acknowledging that it's just a story and inviting him into it and allowing him to sort of be able to parse reality from fiction. I think that that's Wes Craven saying, this is how you should be handling it. This is how you make it so that it doesn't tip unstable children over the edge. Yeah. By like contextual, by contextualizing it as fiction. Yeah. Like as a way to deal, as a way to deal with like your fears 
and the traumas like you face in reality. I mean, and that's the thing, like, I, one of the things I like about that last scene, and, and really about the movie in general, is that what it's saying about Nightmare on Elm Street is that, that it's a fairy tale. Yeah. It's fundamentally no, like, different than Hansel and Gretel. It really is. And the same way that Heather is like, I don't know why you like these fairy tales at the beginning, you know, horror is not for everyone. Yeah. It's it's just a, a fact. And not everyone is going to react to it the same way. But the same way that people like Grimm's fairy tales, people do use horror to contextualize their traumas, to get entertainment, and and to be able to see their experiences, positive and negative, represented on the screen. Absolutely. And feel like they're not alone. And I think that that is super, super important. And I think that horror is able to do that in a way that other genres are not. I would agree, because fear just, like... I mean, so much of what we do is motivated by trauma and fear. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so personal to you, too. It's, it's Everyone's it's is so different. personal. So it's like that's the thing that I think we need to countenance the most in the real world mm-hmm. and in ourselves. And like, yeah, fiction is a great vehicle for that. Definitely. I mean, and horror really gets into the nitty gritty of like, you know, what is psychologically disturbing you. I, I love that the ending of this movie is exactly what the ending of that script that she's reading says. Again, it's very similar yeah. to the scene with Wes Craven. And uh, I just think it's it's a really perfect wrap-up. We get the closing credits. You get the theme song. It's great. Uh, like I said, I think the music is one of the strongest parts of this movie for me in a movie that I really like. And you get one final piece of authenticity, in quotes, where Freddy is played by himself in the credits, which I really yeah. like. So. <laughs> which is fucking great. It's it's really great, and Mabel, we've now reached the point of the show where we explain, we summarize why this is the best horror movie ever made, because we've talked a lot about why this is important and why it's special, but let's, uh, let's break it down and say exactly why this is the best. All right, so uh, we've already talked about this a bit, but I mean, the fact is this movie makes very explicit the role of art, um, in this case, horror movies, in terms of like, how do I put this, helping us countenance reality especially when reality is very difficult and that there's so many things i think we try to deny and repress right that i think eventually bite us in the ass because we've never we didn't actually deal with it horror lets us deal with those things that's what it does it it gives it a form that we can deal with yeah um and that's and this movie is just what this movie is doing is it's actually just making that extremely explicit i I wouldn't call it it's not a subtle movie at all i mean like there's lots of subtlety to some of the creative choices but in terms of like its themes, it's not subtle about its themes at all, which yeah. I love. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wish more people appreciated this movie. I, I can sort of get why Scream might appeal more to, I don't know, general audiences or whatever. Yeah. But Scream's fundamentally saying a very different thing from this movie, which is, and this movie is saying art's very important to help us like contextualize and process our experiences. Yeah. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made for a very similar reason. I I think that the way that people use horror to exercise their demons, literally in this movie, but also figuratively, Mm -hmm. you have Heather with the stalker. You have Dylan with the death of his father. You have Wes Craven with the stagnation and watering down of his work. There is so much that's happening to these people in, in different aspects of their life, but the trauma of it is something that is affecting them all in their own way. Wes Craven is having these pre- uh, precognitive dreams. Um, Dylan is having these uh, battles in, in, in the night and you know climbing up and, and trying to reach God because of his father. And 
there's there's an element of the the stalker piece where you're like did the stalker actually stop because like that was why they were like oh there was two weeks where he hasn't been calling anymore and then freddy uh came back up or Mm -hmm. is it the stalker again like that unsurety for heather is part of why it's so scary and i i agree that the subtlety of this movie or lack thereof i think it's a it's an important message and i think that wes craven by being like this is the message of the movie get it (laughs) i think is very important i love it i think that the meta aspects of it there's like three different levels of meta narrative happening here oh yeah and every one of them works for me the performances are wonderful i think heather langenkamp does a, a spectacular job of sort of being approachable but guarded and having like i said there's just so much emotions wrapped up in the idea of being famous for this thing and but then having to sacrifice a piece of yourself to it and it's really though when she's like able to accept that like right. instead of instead running of away from it away. Yeah. yeah when and when she finally accepts it and you know becomes nancy in that scene that's when she becomes the most powerful she's exactly. not like repressing anything or running away from it she's accepting it as part of herself absolutely and i think that that is why it's the best horror movie ever made Mabel, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This is an absolute yeah, thank joy. for having me on. It was super fun. <laughs> Why don't you tell the people where they can find you? Um, you can find me shitposting on Twitter.com <laughs> at maybe it's Mabel. You can also hear my art uh, or <laughs> hear my music. You can hear my music at don'tdoitneil.com. And if you're interested in seeing what kind of demons I'm trying to exercise through storytelling. Um, you can read my web serial at readformandvoid.com. Hell yeah. I definitely encourage people to go check those things out. Um, they're really great. And you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL or GergHef if you decide that you want to hear my non-horror-related thoughts. Check out LittleHorrorPHL.com where you can find links to pretty much everything, including merch and um, places you can listen to the show. Oh shit, you, you got merch? Hell yeah, dog. We got a gritty looking like child's play. <laughs> oh, God. Perfect. Got a zombie Benjamin Franklin. Oh, I love it. It's There's all kinds of good stuff on there. So, yeah, people definitely go check that out. And uh, leave us a rating and a review because it helps. And that would be lovely. So, thanks to everyone out there. Thanks again to Mabel for coming on. This Thank was really you. great. And uh, bye. Bye.